time to begin our class this morning. It's good to see you today. I'm going to go out on a limb here and uh, express something that I believe to be true. You may feel free to... uh, Challenge me on that if you like. Contradict me, that's okay. Uh, But I think um, summer is here. Any objections? No objections? Okay. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. I'll go pretty sure. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. It's all perspective, isn't it, Minnie? There you go. It's all perspective. If you're visiting with us today, thanks for taking time out of your Sunday morning to come and be with us in our Bible study period. We're studying the book of Psalms, and today we're going to study the 8th, Psalm 8. And we will do that after we take just a moment to go to God in prayer. Pray with me, please. Gracious Father in heaven, we pause for just a moment to praise your holy name. As we contemplate uh, who you are, your nature, your glory, your majesty, we stand in awe of you. We're thankful that in your kindness and in your love, you have taken the time to communicate to us, to reveal yourself to us, to reveal your will to us on the pages of the scriptures. We're thankful for the church. We're thankful for the relationships that we have because of and through Jesus Christ. We're thankful for opportunities when we can come together like this, spend a few minutes Uh, reflecting on uh, a section of your word. We pray for your blessing today as we study Psalm 8. We pray that that our study today will help us to better appreciate who you are, better appreciate who we are, and that uh, our study today will lead us uh, to reflect our gratitude in the way that we live our lives from day to day. We thank you, Father, for all expressions of goodness and kindness that we receive each day from your hand. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Basically, the eighth psalm expresses the idea, or I guess probably the main lesson, that uh, we should pull from it is that when we take a very thoughtful and reasonable consideration of the created world and our place as human beings in that world, that that, uh, that consideration and that contemplation should lead us to offer praise to God. And I believe that's what David is expressing in the 8th Psalm. Think about um, 
before David became King David. We learn from the Old Testament that he tended the sheep of his father. And uh, that would have offered David a lot of opportunities in his younger years to be out in the middle of God's creation. Uh, outside of the towns and the villages and the cities, just out on the rolling hills of the promised land. Described in Scripture as a land flowing with milk and honey, a very lush and fertile place. And I could imagine uh, that there were quite a few nights that saw David out on those rolling hills. And I suspect he would have had um, you know, some kind of light source, oil lamp of some kind perhaps, to, to give him some light. But I have wondered at times if there were times when he put out that lamp and just gazed up into the night sky and viewed the stars of the heavens. And <clears throat> one of the things that, that always uh, amazes me, and one of the things that I, that I truly love to do, is to be able to be out somewhere, uh, outside of the, the glare of city lights, that can often dim the brightness of the stars, and be out in a place so far away from those things, that you can look up <clears throat> and see the brightness of the stars. That was one of the things that, that I really enjoyed greatly when I was in Africa back in March. You know, they call it the dark continent. And there's a reason why they call it the dark continent. Uh, you, can be, uh, you can be out in places where there are no street lights, city lights, and, uh, you know, we found ourselves in places like that, not, not often where we were, but there were a couple of times uh, at night when we would come in <clears throat> and we could gaze up into the heavens and see, and the stars were just so bright because there was no other light competing with them. And I suspect David saw that too, because he talks about, in Psalm 8, the times when he would gaze into the heavens. And the contents of the psalm imply, and we'll see it in a moment, imply that this was something that he did probably fairly often, somewhat regularly. And not only did he contemplate the vastness of the universe, but he contemplated his own place in it, where he fit in, into the grand scheme of things, and into God's plan and God's will. And what resulted from those moments of contemplation from David was praise, worship. And if we allow ourselves to do that too, to, to take some quiet moments of, um, of thoughtfulness and think about where we are in the great uh, expanse of the creation, I, I don't know what else we can do but spend some time in worship to God. And that's what Psalm 8 is about. So let's look at it. The 8th Psalm. We'll just read through it uh, completely, just nine verses. 
And then we'll go back and make some comments. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him, you have made him a little lower than God. Talk about that in just a moment. Some translations a little lower than the angels. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All right. Let's talk first of all about the greatness of God. The greatness of God. Verses 1 through 3, and then again the last verse, verse 9, are David's expressions of how great God is. And he begins it, begins the psalm with a statement of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The words translated Lord in verses 1 and 9. You have the same phrasing. O Lord, our Lord. Those are actually uh, two different words in the Hebrew language. Uh, the first Lord is one word in the Hebrew. The second Lord is another word. They're translated the same way uh, because of, well, obviously it's, it's translator decision, but you may notice, most, most Bibles do this, do you notice in your translation that the first Lord in each of those verses is in all caps and the second Lord is not? O Lord, all caps, our Lord, not all caps. You see that? Okay, some translations have that, some may not, but a lot of them do. The reason why is <clears throat> the first word, Lord, in verse 1 and verse 9, is what's, what's often referred to as the tetragrammaton, the, the four letters of the Hebrew alphabet that form basically the covenant name of God. The 1901 American Standard Version uh, translates that word Jehovah, which is kind of a transliteration. Yahweh uh, is how it's sometimes transliterated into English. And it's, it's the covenant name of God. It's, it, the idea is the self-existing one. Uh, I am that I am, the self-existent one. That's the first word, Lord. And that was the word that the Jewish... Uh, people, the, the, the really you know, orthodox ones, Pharisees and, and, and others too, um, that was the word that they didn't like to pronounce uh, out of reverence to God. They didn't want to even pronounce the name of God because of, of the reverence that they had for Him. There were some scribes who, in copying the Scriptures... 
that every time they came to Yahweh, to this word, they would go and wash themselves, purify themselves, before they would even copy down that covenant name of God. That's how much they held it in reverence. Well, that's the first word. O Yahweh, O Jehovah, covenant name of God, our Lord. Now, this is not Yahweh, this is Adonai, which is a completely different word that means master. We understand Lord in that sense uh, better than we do Lord in the other sense of God's covenant name. We understand the idea of master, one who has authority, one who has power over others. Okay, and that's what that word focuses on. So that's, that's how David begins the psalm. Oh, Jehovah, our master is, is really the idea. Oh, covenant name of God, oh, Yahweh, our authoritative one, the one to whom we submit. How excellent, he says, how majestic, how glorious is your name in all the earth. The name of God <clears throat> stands for really everything that makes God, God. Everything about God, everything about who He is, everything about His nature is majestic and glorious and praiseworthy. And that's what David is expressing in this, in this first statement and in the last of the psalm. They act as kind of bookends to the message of the psalm. That, that everything that there is about God, deserves to be praised. Alright? <clears throat> he says concerning God, end of verse 1, you have set, the one who has set or displayed his splendor, his majesty, his glory, above the heavens. Alright? So, the majesty of God, that which makes God worthy of praise, cannot be contained even by the highest Heavens, you have set your glory, you've set your majesty, you've set your praiseworthiness even above the heavens. So it's an expression of, uh, of, of how praiseworthy God is. And when you think about the psalm and how David in the psalm is, is thinking about not just God but himself, Basically, it, it, it looks as though what David is doing is setting up this comparison by pointing out how transcendent God is, how so far above us He is, and by above us I mean not, not just in physical distance, but in, in splendor, in majesty, in praiseworthiness, in His attributes and His characteristics, everything about God that is majestic and worthy of praise the highest of the heavens cannot contain it. And then he'll say in a moment, in contrast to that, what is man that you're mindful of him? All right, so he's setting up the comparison. You might uh, hold your place in Psalm 8 uh, and turn over a few books to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. I think this is, I'm doing this just by way of comparison. I think this is another instance where, where this distance is, um, is expressed. 
It takes place at the time that God called Isaiah to his prophetic work. Isaiah 6, beginning in uh, verse 1. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord, Adonai, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, these angelic uh, creatures. Verse 3, one, of the, one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> holy is the word that describes um, the idea of separation. If something is holy, it has been separated from that which isn't for God's purposes. It's, it's devoted to God. So it's set apart from that which isn't uh, devoted specifically to God. So the idea in the concept of holiness is separateness. You could, uh, I guess if you wanted to, to express the idea, you could say with regard to God, separate, separate, separate is the Lord God of hosts. Okay, He is holy in triplicate, which incidentally, the only time in Scripture where a characteristic of God is spoken of in the triple, in the triplicate, is His holiness. I think somebody brought that out here recently, I think. God is love, yes, 1 John 4, 8. But you never see that stated in, in triplicate like God's holiness is, both here in Isaiah 6 and in the book of Revelation. Revelation 4 and 5. Alright, so the idea is God's separateness. And Isaiah, Isaiah 6, recognizes that because his response, verse 5, <clears throat> Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone or ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah recognized the separateness of God, the majesty, the greatness of God in comparison to his own sinfulness. And it was about more than he could stand. And then God uh, came and uh, pronounced his sin cleansed, and, and then uh, the story moves on from there. But I just wanted to point out from Isaiah 6, just another example of what we have in Psalm 8, of God being shown to be far above us in holiness, in majesty, in praiseworthiness, in glory, all of that. That's what David expresses in those first three verses of Psalm 8. All right, now look at, um, look at verse 2. <clears throat> David here expresses, in verses 2 and 3, where the greatness of God can be seen, where it can be witnessed. How has God expressed His greatness and His majesty? Well, in the first place, the majesty of God can be seen in the smallest of infants. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the vengeful cease. All right, so even though there are enemies, there are vengeful people who speak against God, God can even silence them 
with the seemingly small, insignificant, and powerless. You think about who we might choose to be the ones to silence the uh, the enemies of God. Okay, we would probably try to select, you know, the most um, uh, the one with the most oratorical skills, the the one with the most uh, uh, knowledge, and and um, uh, you know the one that that has you know the most um, you know advanced degrees or whatever somebody that can that can stand up and powerfully defend the righteousness and the holiness of God. Well nothing wrong with that. But it's interesting here that David said God can put to silence his enemies through that which to us seems very insignificant, very small, and very powerless. The infant, the child. And that's something that's characteristic of God. Uh, his ability and His choice oftentimes to use that which we humans view completely differently than the way He views it. Uh, when, when, uh, when Samuel was going to select a king that would ultimately be David from Psalm 8, one that wrote Psalm 8, God told Samuel when he thought that, that uh, this particular son of Jesse would be the one, God said, nope, that's not the one. Don't look at his outward appearance. Because man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. Jesus made an application of this psalm in uh, Matthew chapter 21. You want to hold your place in Psalm 8 again? Turn over to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 21. Look at verses 15 and 16. This is right after Jesus uh, had been given his uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So this is the last week of his life, and he he comes to Jerusalem, and he's riding on the back of this uh, donkey, and people are crying out uh, praise to him. So this is right after that, and... um, Verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, he had been healing people, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they, the chief priests and scribes, became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself? Jesus quoted Psalm 8. So get the picture. Here's Jesus. He's he's been brought into Jerusalem to to the praise of all kinds of people. And now he's in the temple. He's been healing people. And children now have picked up what they heard the adults saying about Jesus when he came into the city. And now they're crying out, Hosanna! 
A word that means, uh, it's, it's an expression of uh, desire for salvation. Save us, we pray. Hosanna to the Son of David. Right? They're recognizing, uh, you know, expressing uh, the, the, the royal lineage of Jesus. That He's King. And so these children are, are, are mimicking what they've heard the others say. And it's just that the scribes and the chief priests can't stand it. And so they come to Jesus and say, do you hear what these children are saying? The Lord's answer was, yeah. Yeah, I hear it. Their implication was, why are you allowing it to happen? Why are you letting them express that kind of praise to you? Their perspective was, he didn't deserve that. God deserves it, but he didn't. Jesus answered by quoting Psalm 8. He said, haven't you ever read? You're not familiar with this passage? That was, which was kind of a biting thing for him to say, but he said it. Haven't you come across this passage before? Out of the mouths of babes, God has established praise for himself. The Lord's point was, yes, I hear it, and I'm not stopping it because what they're saying is true. Because I do deserve this praise. So here was an instant where... You had chief priests and scribes. These were the highest of the, uh, the, the, the looked up to the most people in Judaism. These were the copiers of the law. These were the priests who were in charge of the religious rituals and ceremonies and stuff in, in Jerusalem. These, these were the top people in Judaism. And they were rejecting the deity of Christ and his kingship. They were, they were the ones that are trying to press him to the cross. And here were these little children who knew more about who Jesus was than those guys did. Because they were expressing the truth. In fulfillment, Jesus said of Psalm 8. So there was, a, there was a situation where God took that which was seemingly powerless, small, insignificant, uneducated children. And he put to shame the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of Judaism. So God can do that. And God has done that. Back to Psalm 8. So, and, so the greatness of God can be expressed through that which is small and seemingly insignificant and without power. On the other hand, and to the other extreme, if you will, the greatness of God can be seen in the vastness of the heavens. Verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, Again, this is, this is what's springing up these words of praise from David. It's not just the small and the powerless and the insignificant, but it's the vastness of the created heavens that also express the, um, the greatness and majesty of God. And notice how David begins that verse. When I consider... Now there's the statement that, that tells me that this was something that David did on somewhat of a regular basis. He didn't say that one time in the past when I considered past tense. 
He said, no, when I do this, when I consider the heavens. Again, the wording of it implies this is something that I do. This is something that, that I do regularly. And when I do that, when I consider your heavens, he recognized in the first place that those things that he saw in the sky, in the night sky, he knew them to be the product of God. David didn't look up into the heavens and see the moon and the stars, the working of God, and and conclude that all that happened by blind chance. He said, notice his wording, your heavens, when I consider your heavens, when I consider the work of your fingers that you have set in place. David understood that those things were the result of God's creative power. And that's the proper response to a consideration, a reasonable consideration of the created world. If you want to hold your place in Psalm 8 and turn over just a few pages to the 19th. Psalm 19. A psalm also attributed to David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, but their lion has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. David says there that, again, similar to Psalm 8, that the heavens declare, express the glory of God. He says they don't do it in words. It's not a verbal thing. But there's no place on the world where you can go where that evidence doesn't exist. It's gone throughout the whole earth. And so when David considered those things, that was his conclusion. Uh, Paul makes a very similar point in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. In that context of Romans 1 where he's talking about the sins of the uh, Gentiles, the, the, the sins that were per- basically characteristic of the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, And one of the major problems that existed among the Gentiles was idolatry. Uh, You know, the the formation of false gods out of the things that have been created and people worshiping wood and stone and other things. And in that context, Paul writes, in, in, in contradiction to that way of thinking, he says, since the creation of the world. The invisible things of Him, of God, since the creation of the world, are clearly seen being perceived through the things that have been made. Even His everlasting power and divinity, deity, so that they are without excuse. The they that are without excuse are those who have rejected the idea of God in favor of idols. So, so Paul writes there, since the, since the beginning of the creation, 
God's characteristics, God's attributes, His deity, has been clearly perceived through the things that have been made. In other words, as people throughout history have gazed into the heavens and they've considered the earth and everything that's in it, they've considered the work of God's hands, reasonable people have considered those things since the creation of the world and reached the conclusion that there is a God. And he says those characteristics of God are clearly seen. And so those who reject God in favor of whatever, Paul says they don't have any excuse for that. They don't have any reason for that. Um... I don't know if you remember or are familiar with the name Bertrand Russell. He was a famous uh, skeptic, uh, agnostic uh, of, um, wow, where, when was he? Late 1800s, early 1900s, something like that, I think. Uh, went around the world uh, lecturing against the idea of God. And somebody asked him one time, Let me t- they said, I want to ask you just a hypothetical question. Let's just say, hypothetically, that you die, and after your death, you come to realize that there actually is a God. And you stand before Him to answer for what you're doing in this life. What would you say if you were in that position? Russell's answer was this. He said, I would simply say that you did not give enough evidence in this world that you exist. Now, that may be what he tries to say, or has tried to say, but Paul says that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because the evidence of God can be clearly seen, if people reason correctly about it. And people have been since the creation of the world. And so, that's what David is expressing in Psalm 8. When I, when I consider all of these things that I see, I recognize, first of all, that they are yours. They're your heavens. It's the work of your fingers. It, those are things that you have ordained. The size of the universe, just the size of the universe. Forget the, the intricate detail and, and evidence of design that exists in the universe, just the, just the sheer size of it screams for the acceptance of a creator. God told Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous, as innumerable as the stars of the heavens. Scientists have tried to count the stars. They can only estimate, of course, and as, as technology advances and telescopes get uh, better, more accurate, clearer, they just keep upping the number of, of estimated stars. It, it's in the sextillions now. And the sextillion is a, a number with 21 zeros on the end of it. Now, that's, that's, that's the range that scientists are saying now of the number of stars of the heavens. We, we still don't know. And that's what God said, right? Innumerable. Well, David said those, it's all the work of God's hands. And then, now, you get to verse 4. We're changing now from the greatness of God to the goodness of God. Beginning in verse 4. 
on the heels of that, uh, when he says, when I consider all of that, and I look out and I see the vastness of the, 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 the stars of the heavens. And David didn't have a telescope. All he could see was whatever he could see with the naked eye. And yet he said, all of that's yours. And then when I consider all of that, verse 4 is the question that comes into his mind. Pondering the skies led him not just to praise God, but to ponder a deeper question. And that is, who are we that you, God, the one who created all of these things that cause us so much amazement. Who, who are we, really, seriously, that you would be mindful of us? That you would care for us? Compared to God, we are weak, frail. If we were to try to harness every ounce of worldwide human strength and collective knowledge. Let's say we could harness all of that. Get all of the people that exist in the world. What are we up to now? Seven billion estimated in the world? Let's harness all of that physical strength in one person or in one place. And then let's, let's gather the collective knowledge of all of those people into one place or in one person. Still, that's nothing to God. Didn't we study in Psalm 2 that God is not, um, that God's not afraid of His creation? Remember, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? Let us cast off the cords of God from us. Let us break the bonds that tie us to Him. And He who sits in the heavens does what? Laughs. He laughs. People try to cast off God and God's restrictions and God's law and all of that, and they think they've stood up to God, and God just sits back and laughs. Okay? God doesn't need us we, we, you know, He doesn't need us to complete Him. God is complete in Himself. Paul said in Acts 17, He is not served by men's hands as though He needed anything. Acts 17, 24 and 25. Since He Himself gives to all life and breath and all things. God doesn't need anything. God is the source of everything. Yet, still, he is mindful of us, Psalm 8.4. Mindful. We occupy His thoughts. And He visits us, cares for us, gives us attention. And David saw that characteristic of God as a characteristic Deserving praise. How interesting that Job saw the same characteristic of God, but reached a different conclusion. In Job 7, beginning in verse 17, 
Listen to Job's words. And I believe, I may be wrong about this, I believe Job historically lived a long time before David. So Job would have spoken these words before David spoke them. But they're so similar. Look at this. Job, Job 7, verse 17. What is man that you magnify him? And that you are concerned about him? Doesn't that sound similar? But notice how Job continues. That you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Job is complaining before God about his condition. Verse 20, have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I'm a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I'll lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. Job basically says, God, there's going to come a time when you're not going to have old Job to kick around anymore when I die. Can't you just pardon my iniquity and move on? But he uses this same wording. Why, why, have you, why is it that you are, are concerned about me, but not concerned about me to help me? You're concerned because you want to set me up as your target. You won't even turn away from me long enough for me to swallow my own spit, Job says. So Job saw God's constant attention as a negative thing. David saw God's constant attention as exactly the opposite. Reason for praise and worship. Alright, back to Psalm 8. He is mindful of us. You have made him, verse 5, a little lower than God. I read earlier, that was from the New American Standard Version. A little lower than the angels. Uh, other translations, I think angels is probably better. Uh, that's the way it's quoted in Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9. Uh, and the difference is, and the reason why there's a difference in translation is, the word there in the Hebrew is the word Elohim, which is most often translated God. But there is a generic use of that word that we find in other places in the Old Testament, but it's not often. But there is that generic use of the word that, that refers merely to supernatural beings, but not to Jehovah God in particular. One of those places is Psalm 62, 8, which Jesus quoted in John 10 and affirmed that there is a proper use of the word Elohim that can apply to somebody other than the Father in particular. So translators have to decide... What's he saying here? What contextually, grammatically, what's the idea here? And some translators uh, have, have opted that, that God should be the translation. Others have opted for angels. Uh, when the Hebrews writer in chapter 2 quoted from the psalm, uh, he quoted it as angels. And I think that's probably the idea. God has made man a little lower than the angels. In Hebrews 2, it's... it's Spoken of not just with regard to man in general, but Jesus in particular, who became man a little lower than the angels. But, though that's the case, he's yet still crowned with glory and honor. Verse 5. And there are a lot of ways that God's done that. A lot of ways that God has honored us. Made in His image. Genesis 1. He's placed eternity within our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. 
He's formed the spirit of man within him. Zechariah 12, verse 1. He enacted a plan to redeem us from our sins. Ephesians 1. So those are all expressions of the glory and honor that God has given us. And another is expressed in verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 8, and that is that God has entrusted us with His world. He gave us dominion over the works of His hands. Put all things under His feet, under the feet of men. We are identifiably different and of more value than the animal kingdom. God has placed all of that under our authority and our control. And all of those things that that David has listed serve as evidence that we are special to God. And they serve as evidence of God's praiseworthiness because only the supreme God of the universe could place a being so low, man, to elevations so high. And that is what caused David to say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how excellent is your name in all the earth. But here is man's problem. David doesn't address it here, but it's addressed often in Scripture. It has been our historical tendency as human beings to embrace the blessing while rejecting the source of it. We are ready to accept our place as caretakers of God's world. We're ready to accept uh, the fact that, that our world, the world in which we live, gives us everything we need for our survival, for our ability, giving us the ability to flourish and advance. Well, all of those things are from God, and we're, we readily accept the blessings. But human beings in general have rejected the God who gave us all of that. And we have turned, and to use Paul's words in Romans 1, we have worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And that is to our shame. All right. Summary of lessons. We're out of time. Number one, David makes a point of affirming that the transcendent, all-powerful, glorious, and majestic God is also very personal. He is our God. There is no place where the majesty of God is not visible. If you can look up and see the sky, you can see the majesty of God. Even the weakest among us is sufficient to silence the critics of God. Verse 2. Contemplating the cosmos should lead to a contemplation of God and of our place in His plan. Verses 3 and 4. God thinks about me. Isn't that a grand thought itself? Verse 4, that God thinks about me. And He thinks about you. And God trusts me. And He trusts you. Verses 6 through 8. He's placed us in charge of the works of His hands. God trusts us. Let's not betray that trust. All right? Great psalm, Psalm 8. Lots of, lots of opportunity for contemplation and um, praise. All right. Thank you much. Appreciate it. Psalm 13 next week.